hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, we have a long format interview today with former NIH researcher David Schein. David's become active in the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, He's applied his scholarship to help us understand how the spike protein, or that spine on the surface of the ball of the virus, how it does cause its symptoms by attaching to cells, particularly red blood cells, as well as uh, endothelial cells, the cells that line the blood vessels, uh, and create symptoms, not just blood clots, but actually create symptoms. Uh, he's published a recent paper that has over 300 references. It's very comprehensive. I'll provide it in the show notes. Uh, but this is a very important interview, particularly for those of you who are in the scientific field, are trying to understand how the virus and how the vaccine causes symptoms. This is a interview you cannot miss uh, so let's go ahead and move right into the program with Dr. David Scheim. Uh, you're listening to the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. It's my great pleasure to welcome on America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report. I'm having him come back to the show, Dr. David Scheim. David is a former National Institutes of Health researcher who's contributed greatly to our understanding of SARS-CoV-2 infection and what it does to the body through the pandemic. He's been a colleague, uh, just a trusted resource, and he has a very important paper to present to us today. And so let me just read you the title of the paper. The title of the paper is Silated Glycan Bindings from SARS-CoV-2 Spike Protein to Blood and Endothelial Cells Govern the Severe Morbidities of COVID-19. And this was published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. David, that is a mouthful for our audience, (laughs) but welcome to Courageous Discourse and McCullough Report. And let's have you kind of give us an intro to yourself and then then this project. Okay, well, well, thank you very much. Uh, Let me just add that I I had some major co-authors on this paper, including those at Yale and the University of Alberta. Uh, and and the, the key thing I want to add, this is not a new theory. This is basic biochemistry 101 of coronaviruses. You need to know this uh, to explain the morbidities, efficacy of therapeutics, uh, uh, adverse effects of vaccines. But amazingly, for decades, and I saw this at NIH, uh, mainstream medicine is obsessed with only genetics. How can we use genetics to develop drugs? Biochemistry 101 of SARS-CoV-2, we don't need to know that. All we need to know is genetics. Uh, uh, so this, so what I'm telling you is well known. It's established for decades. For coronaviruses, it's been proven in countless studies, clinical, preclinical, for this virus in particular. But it's been ignored, and and it, it's it's really a scandal. And 
Uh, basically, ACE2 is the replication receptor of this virus. That's what it uses to it to attach, to get into a host cell and generate. But this uh, coronaviruses has have many different replication receptors. What is much more important are the glycan bindings. This is how coronaviruses attach to host cells. They're the It's the arms and the legs of the virus. They grab onto host cell glycans. And at the same time, red cells, there's only 5 trillion of them in the human body. It's the most abundant cell, but big pharma-dominated medicine doesn't care about red cells. They have no DNA. But anyway, red cells mount a primal defense against uh, pathogens like coronaviruses. They attach to them. They they clump them. They The idea is to get them out of circulation. Mm. But the thing is, for the deadly human beta coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2 and MERS, this goes too far. It becomes self-destructive. The clumping is so intensive that the body can't clear the clumps. And we found in COVID, the more the severe morbidities come within the blood. The lung mechanics are normal. It's the clumping inside the capillaries of the lungs that limits the oxygenation. This is what typically kills the severe COVID patient. And it's the clumping that causes the blood clotting. It starts a process of clotting. Uh, this is uh, directly because of the viral attachments. And so all they care of, all the mainstream medicine is focused on is ACE2. And so not only the red cells are loaded with uh, these glycans that the virus attached to, also the endothelial cells are loaded with it. And endothelial damage is another major cause of vascular damage and vascular occlusion. Uh, I, I, that's the basics of it. And I, I could uh, go on and just list how this all, I can in fact show well, the- uh, But David, before you do, let me just kind of set the stage here. So we have, uh, we've been talking about the spike protein, uh, which is the spine on the surface of the virus. So the virus uh, invades the body and the virus is replicating. So it's producing, you know, roughly- you, you know, over two dozen proteins. So there's an envelope protein and and the, the, robo, the, the robonucleases and the, um, uh, you know, the envelope protein, the spike protein. Now, when the spike protein is produced, a freshly replicated virus that's inside a human cell, how do these side attachments, these glycans, how do they get produced and attached? Uh, well, let me just stepping one step back just for a second. The idea in viral replication is the spike pro, it's produced independently of the core of the virus. And the idea is it's all gonna get attached before the virus get, however, some of it leaks and does not get attached. So that's okay. why we, we find a lot of free spike protein in COVID infections. Uh, and you can sort of replicate, experimentally replicate the effect of spike protein alone in animals by giving them IV injections of the vaccine, which causes the generation mm -hmm. of spike protein. And you get the same kind of morbidities. It just 
confirms it's the spike protein. Uh, so basically, I mean, this gets into complex biochemistry and it's, it's in the paper, but there are uh, some 19 attachment sites mm -hmm. on the spike protein. There are uh, most, uh, there's some on the RBD and some on the NTD, and these attach to glycans, which, uh, which stick out from the spike protein. And right. right, but but are the glycans, are they part of the code, the genetic code of SARS-CoV-2? Are they post-transcription? That, that, that's, a, that's a really, really good question. And uh, I, I, I have, didn't cover that. I mean, glycans are abundant in the right. human body. And right. I, I have a feeling it's not part, part of the code. It's probably just something that, that gets stuck on in the very end. Right. Uh, so so that's my point. So many program many proteins become glycosylated or become proteoglycans, but it's almost always post-transcriptional and it has to do with some fundamentals of chemistry, how you know sugar or carbohydrate molecules attach to proteins. But you know, it's it's obviously part of the human infection of SARS-CoV-2. I, th I think you make that very compelling. It, it's clearly these glycan structures are major players in spike protein-related pathology. Yeah, you know, the endothelium, the red blood cell, first of all, glycans are on most host cells, almost every blood cell. They're loaded in red cells, platelets. And the thing is, someone did a study on, on a particular type of human endothelial cell. They found 50% of the surface was sialic acid. This is the key. I mean, this is amazing. So I, endothelial cells have very little ACE2. So mainstream medicine sort of says, well, there's no ACE2, so let's sort of forget about endothelial damage. It can't really be happening. In fact, this is after red cell clumping. It's the second most prominent cause of vascular damage. Vascular, and, but, but mainstream medicine says, oh, no ACE2. Let's just ignore it. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's sort of, and the same with the, I, I, let me just add the same with the vaccine. So the idea of a vaccine, you take the pathogen, you change it so it's harmless and you use it to generate an immune response. So what does medicine, genetics obsessed medicine do? They say the spike protein, it doesn't replicate. So let's use it. You know, all they care about is replication. This is the most toxic part of this virus. Uh, so it, it was a major blunder <laughs> to, in a sense, commandeer the body's own, you know, ribosomes to produce spike protein inside the cells. Which well, it, yeah, you're right. However, there's different kinds of spike protein-based vaccines. Whether or not you produce it genetically doesn't matter. They all have the basic same set of problems. mRNA, mRNA generation compounds the problem because you don't know how much and exactly where it's well, going to yeah. be generated. Yeah, so the, the genetics are tough because there's no off switch. We don't know actually the dose of spike protein we receive for how long. But the other problem is expression on the cell surface. So if something is produced inside the cell, unless it's packaged up in a vesicle and then actually secreted, and we know the spike is actually it actually is expressed on the cell surface, immediately it's going to invite attack. So that would be Pfizer, Moderna, 
And then Janssen, now Novavax is just giving the spike protein, you know, external yeah. to cells and getting, and your point is there's still problems with that. Approach. Oh yeah, yeah, there's still problems. And there's a whole denatured vaccine. I think it's called Sinovac. And this paper covers the differences. Sinovac, if, you know, there's good, really good studies, careful major institutions where uh, they look at every person vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And there are ways you can look at microvascular occlusion. It's it's a sort of advanced way of looking at the retina. And you can just see, you can see some, when you see microvascular occlusion in the retina following the vaccine, that's not good. This is mm-hmm. preclinical. It's not a stroke. It's not myocarditis. But it's the pre. It's the first step towards that. You do not see that with the Sinovac vaccine. Oh, Hope, that's interesting. Oh, but you see it with, I believe, uh, mRNA. In any case, I don't think this study looked at non-mRNA spike protein. But basically, anything with spike protein. This is the the toxic part of this virus, and you should not be using it in any way. Right. Now, David, one of my questions for you is, is the receptor. There's been such a focus on the ACE2 receptor. You mentioned other receptors. You know, prior to the pandemic, I was very active in the research of natriuretic peptides, particularly B-type natriuretic peptide, a a hormone secreted by the heart. It goes to the kidneys elsewhere in the body. One of the things we discovered with BMP is that receptors that BMP uses are also responsible for its catabolism. It's what we call receptor-mediated catabolism. With SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, is there some receptor-mediated catabolism of the spike protein with the natural infection? I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not. I'm not just not familiar with that. The, the reason why I bring this up is it's interesting. So with the infection, Bruce Patterson at Incel DX has described the S1 segment only in CD16 positive monocytes, you know, a year and a half after the infection. Whereas with the vaccine, Bruce Patterson is reporting the full length spike. And it's interesting with the vaccine, the spike is held open. Pfizer and Moderna use the same two uh, proline insertions to hold it open in the pre-fusion confirmation. So the vaccine spike protein does not fuse with ACE2, according to the work by Brogna. So we wouldn't get any receptor mediated catabolism. You know, there's the, the spike protein folds. It's not really like an arrow, it folds. And so uh, the S2 segment actually is the one in theory that's sacrificed with receptor-mediated catabolism. But I've always theorized that, you know, the antibodies against spike protein are lower with the infection than with the vaccine by a considerable amount. And the fact that maybe with the natural infection, we, we begin to have some defenses in mucosal immunity, all the ACE2 receptors, children, are loaded with ACE2 receptors. And it yeah. may be one of the reasons why they have so much you know, better defenses, much more catabolism than others uh, who have lesser <laughs> quantities of ACE2 receptors. So I yeah. think it's just a curious observation that with the vaccine, it looks like we get a full dose of the prefusion confirmation spike. It almost certainly is obviously glycosylated. It get, picks up these glycans and it's ready to go really as a very damaging protein in the bloodstream and elsewhere in the body. Whereas the natural infection, there's at least half a chance to try to limit the damage. Yeah, well, I just want to emphasize, uh, you can formulate a lot. And I think the best researchers have 
you know, taking this idea that ACE2 was central, it's sort of like you had a, oh, let's see, the, uh, the Helios, no, the geocentric model of the universe from Ptolemy, where the Earth was the center, and you had the epicycles. You can start, given any starting point, you can fudge work around it. I just want to say ACE2 is really irrelevant. You know, you let me just add one key thing, and when we get to the graphical abstract, I can quickly yeah. show that. But uh for you have five human beta coronaviruses. Uh uh three of them are deadly, SARS-CoV-2 and MERS. Two common colds are benign. Both of those common cold viruses secrete an enzyme which breaks a, a viral spike protein to host cell glycan bindings. It relief so the enzyme breaks it. These are the two benign ones. The other three are deadly. It had they're not all, they don't all use ACE2, the replication receptor. You know, the common cold, you get exactly the same viral load as you do with COVID, but it's benign. It, it's not how much virus or how it's replicating. That's a sideshow. What matters is the attachments, the red cell trying to clear and clump it and clogging up the circulation. That, that's... Uh, important insights. Now, David, a picture speaks a thousand words. Now is, now is your trial of trying to share okay. the screen on the McCullough Report, something my fans know I never <laughs> do because I'm too old to figure out the technology. But David Schein, uh, listen, everybody, trust him. He, uh, he's a, a top graduate, former NIH scientist. He will show us this graphical abstract. Okay, let's see if we can do this experiment. Oh, and there it is. I told you he would do it. <laughs> okay. It's on the screen for all of us to see, recorded in history, David. Take it from the top. This is actually all a right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, working this uh, too. But anyway, uh, so I, as I was just mentioning, there are five human beta coronaviruses. Uh, the two common colds express hemagglutinin and esterase, esterase, which breaks down glycan bindings to virus. These are harmless. The other three don't have HE and they're deadly. Now, uh, so the red blood cells, now this is not, it's not only red blood cells that binds to spike protein. This really models many, many host cells, endothelial cells, platelets, uh, uh, also uh, bind to red cells, but red cells alone explain a lot. So here we show the binding of spike protein to red blood cells in the clumping. Now, uh, David, David, in the entire blood pool, how much spike protein do you think is bound to red blood cells? Well, you know, this is really interesting because there are many studies that look at how much spike protein is in blood. The problem is the red cell is 40% of the volume of blood and spike protein binds sharply. There's one study that looked at red cells found in severe COVID patients and uh, well, hospitalized COVID patients found that 40% of red cells had spike protein attachments. So you can't really measure this very well using plasma. And almost every study but Brahma uses plasma instead of red cells. So we, you know, we don't really have a good handle on that, but we do know, you know, just from that one study I mentioned, 40% of red cells had spike protein. Wow. Uh, 
it's pretty pervasive. And, and you, you mentioned no ACE2 receptor on red cells or that's, that's correct. Not a, and very little. Uh, glycan receptors outnumber uh, uh, ACE2, something like 100 to 1 on the endothelial cell. So there's okay. very now, little. David, people are going to ask me because this has come up over and over again. Is there a difference of attachment of spike protein according to blood type? So the major yeah. antigen. Yes, but I will say I've tried, believe it or not, there's 359-sided references. You, you, This is a, a nuance that I haven't covered I've in this paper. I've only covered the things where there's actual, absolutely definitive, clear-cut, okay. simple evidence. So there is a difference in blood types, and some are more prone to glycan bindings. However, what we know with no controversy is that the three... Well, let me just jump to this for a second. The three key COVID risk factors all are characterized by markedly increased red cell aggregability. Mm -hmm. In older age, you, you take their blood and you see much greater clumping. Not only that, but the blood flow is a lot slower as you mm -hmm. age. And that uh, the... For the forces, the, the skew forces of circulation, when they're fast, they tend to disaggregate red cells. So you have greater tendency to clumping and less speed of flow. Diabetes and obesity have much greater red cell clumping. And as you mentioned, certain blood types too, but it's not as major effect as with uh, David, is it diabetes because of the glucose attachment to red blood cells, the hemoglobin A1C? It, it, yeah, it, it, the, but diabetics who have the worst glucose control have even more red, uh, red cell aggregation than uh, other diabetics with good glucose control. Yes. But so in theory, uh, you know, in my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we interviewed Yvette Lozano, and she was one of the first in Dallas to treat COVID, but she made the observations that high sugar diets, high blood sugar, high hemoglobin A1C, they had worse outcomes. And uh, you know, it turns out now there's just dozens and dozens of papers to support our observations. It looks like that kind of is consistent with uh, with your work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, all this is known. Uh, I, I've really stuck in this paper to things that are really well established. They're not theoretical or out there. You know, if you look at pharma-dominated medicine, for every new drug, there's an alphabet soup of yeah, this mechanism supposed to do this and this and this, and very rarely do they actually work. I think <laughs> I've I've tried to stick to things that are known for decades. Let me just, on that note, one very interesting set of studies uh, involves artificially inducing red cell clumping in animals using a polymer high molecular weight dextran. Uh, so you find, you get the red cell clumping and you get just about the same morbidities as you do with COVID by inducing red cell clumping in an entirely different way. Uh, and if you use low molecular weight dextran, which opposes the clumping, you reverse and block these morbidities. Uh, uh, and interestingly, just jumping to another little sidetrack, but one of the most uh, repeatedly observed morbidities of this experimental red cell clumping is myocarditis. 
And mm. so, so you get red cell clumping, it causes myocarditis. And we could, you know, get back to that maybe a little bit later with, with the vaccines. But uh, well, based- let me just say an interesting observation is the paper by Nakahara and colleagues, which showed that the hearts and people who took the vaccine all took on almost an ischemic appearance on cardiac PET with avid uptake of 18-fluorodeoxyglucose and uh, you know favoring that over free fatty acids. And that's a characteristic ischemia pattern. It's interesting. Now, how could you make the whole heart ischemic? Well, the only way to do that would be to have some microvascular clumping in the heart. Yeah. I, I cover that study. I, I, I very limited. I cover the studies that are definitive, and that's one of them. You that's look at it's a good study. You look at every. You don't only look at the vaccinated patients, a subset who had morbidities. You look at norm a regular set, uh, pre-vaccinated versus vaccinated. And yes, the the this preclinical marker of myocarditis shows up for the vaccinated people, which, you know, it, it, it's exactly what you say. The And you there's another study on vaccines that I, I mentioned before uses uh, looking advanced techniques, looking at the retina to look for microvascular occlusion there, which really represents what happens in the whole body. And you find that after vaccination, the cohort that's vaccinated uh, have significantly more microvascular occlusion. When I say st- significant, it's statistically significant. Uh, it's, you know, it's not huge. They, they, you know, it's not like they're dropping dead from this, but it just, it, it this should not be happening. And then- Right, right. And that, that, that's an important study. I believe it's by uh, uh, Lee or Xi and colleagues. And, and, you know, it was a huge study. It was over a million people studied. And the absolute rates of, micro blood clots in the retinal arteries and veins was small. Let's say it was somewhere around 2%, essentially absent in those who didn't take the vaccine. But that means the relative risk is high. And in that paper, David, one of their conclusions is, listen, this isn't happening in the eye. This is reflective of what's going on in the entire body. That, oh, a- absolutely. And you know, there's that famous abstract in circulation, which is a very major journal. There was a lot of pushback, but it, it stood with just some relatively minor changes. But he looked at something like 550 patients in his cardiology clinic before and after vaccination. And he used as a composite of various blood tests to predict five-year cardiac event risk. And it's a it's an accurate predictor. He found that his patients after vaccination, their five-year risk went from 11% to 25%. Uh, wow. That's, so- that, that's stunning. Now, now David, we're going to um, take a break here for a minute for our sponsors, and we're going to return. We're pretty much working in the middle of the graphical abstract right now. You've been listening to the McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse with my, uh, my uh, great colleague, uh, David Scheim, former NIH researcher, Uh, discussing a recent uh, fully peer-reviewed manuscript uh, that now is is published. So let's take a break here, and we'll get back on the backside of the McCullough Report. The wellness company is offering the Signature Series Spike Support Formula. The wellness company supports this formula because it's designed to 
remove spike protein from the body in its design, in terms of its mechanism of action, the accumulation of spike protein occurs because of repeated COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 illness. The spike protein stays in the body a long time, causes heart, brain, body tissue damage, as well as blood clotting. The spike support formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. It includes natokinase, the principal ingredient, 2,000 fibrinolytic units or 100 milligrams. Those are uh, equal in terms of uh, conversion. Selenium, 75 micrograms. Black sativa extract, 500 milligrams. Irish sea moss powder, 500 milligrams. Green tea extract, 150 milligrams, and dandelion extract, 50 milligrams. Why the other ingredients? The other ingredients are designed to help block the spike protein's effect on tissues, help tissues recover and repair. It's the best we have now when patients are in need. At this point in time, we can't make broad therapeutic claims regarding disease states, but we can tell you that this is reasonable in terms of supporting the body and helping the body clear spike protein and allowing your pathway back to better health. So go to twc.health and check out the spike support formula. You can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty.
America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Wow, we're here with David Schein. We're in the middle of a graphical abstract. Listen, everybody, hang in there. This is heavy science, but we're learning so much together. David, take it away. What else uh, do you have for our audience regarding this important uh, this important figure? Okay, well, let me just, you know, uh, finishing up the graphical abstract. So uh, just to start from, uh, you might, I'm not sure if you can see the pointer, but to start from the lower, lower left, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein clumps red cells, as well as clumping platelets and attaching to endothelial cells. Those clumps, which you can see in vitro, you add spike protein uh, to red cells, nothing else. You get the, the clumping. Uh, you do that in zebrafish, you get the same thing. You see red cell clumps, the blood flow stops. Uh, and interestingly, in uh, in vitro, if you add ivermectin, you don't get this clumping. Ivermectin is one of three drugs that reduces red cell aggregation in different ways. Ivermectin, the effect is most profound and immediate. It competitively binds to the spike protein. It prevents it from binding to the host cell glycans and causing the clumping. So with ivermectin, you get no hemagglutination. And in fact, after the hemagglutination, if you add ivermectin, it reverses it. It undoes the clumping. Uh, with the zebrafish, if you add heparin, which has basically the same effect, not as strong as ivermectin, that blocks the red cell clumping. Uh, so, so basically, you get this clumping in, in severe COVID patients, you see the red cell clumps uh, characteristically. And so you see this clumping. And what does that do? In the lungs, it prevents proper oxygenation. It gets in the way of the oxygen transfer and also in the tissues. So you get hypoxia, which is the most deadly morbidity of severe COVID. And then, and you also, you find spike protein protein in damaged endothelial cells. Again, endothelial cells are loaded with sialic acid glycans. The spike protein attaches to them, damages the endothelial cells. So between the clumping and the damaged endothelial cells, you get the hypoxia and outside the lungs, you get uh, blood clots. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I guess what we haven't covered yet is the three therapeutics, the generics of major interest, uh, which were hydroxychloroquine, uh, fluvoxamine, and especially ivermectin. Mm -hmm. and, and of those three, is it your opinion that ivermectin is, is the most active in terms of blocking the effects of the spike protein? Well, what we find clinically... Uh, we have three different studies, each with dozens of severe COVID patients, start with uh, admission oxygen saturation of 93% or less, which is heavy NIH, one of the criteria sufficient to define it as severe. Uh, they're treated with ivermectin in combination with some other agents. And 
It, and in each of these three studies, within a day, there's a radical, a sharp increase in oxygen saturation, oxygen saturation, pretty much taking them to normal. In some cases, this happens within hours. It exactly replicates that in vitro study I mentioned with hemagglutination. You add spike protein to red cells, you get hemagglutination. You add ivermectin, it reverses, it undoes the hemagglutination. So, 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 David, are you uh, hypothesizing that these lower uh, figures, uh, lower right panel, that that some of this is becomes the, the hemagglutination less severe, there's greater flow through the capillaries, better uh, and more normalized oxygen exchange that's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Let me just add... In the normal human being, there's some degree of red cell clumping, especially in slow flowing, like if you're sitting in a long time in an airplane in the bottom of a leg vein, you'll you'll see that red cell clumping. And then once you get the blood flowing again, it reverses. So the body has ways of sequestering large amounts of red cell clumping. So to uh, up to a certain degree, it's reversible. So uh, we're not, if you add ivermectin, the, the, there could be red cell clumps that the body is juggling, uh, sometimes less successfully than others. But once you release that, you can get a, an immediate uh, relief and normalization. Uh, obviously, when, when you get fibrin in the mix and these harden into clots, then you those don't reverse within hours. Right. But I've, you know, one yeah. of the products that we've been working with now in the long COVID and post-vaccine injury syndromes is natokinase. And the Japanese actually tried natokinase and it's it, it, it does relatively efficiently degrade and dissolve the spike protein. And uh, interesting, there's a few studies where they have natokinase in the medium and then you try to infect cells with SARS-CoV-2, they can't do it. The spike protein is stripped off and the cells become these innocuous balls. Uh, I mean, the virus, the virions become these innocuous balls and they can't be, they can't invade the cells. Well, that that that, that is really interesting. Let me just mention from, I'm allergic to soy and, and sort of reluctant to do any soy product, but serapeptase is another one of these natural yeah. uh, products that, that so, I, I take at time. It just seems to really dissolve the gunk in the body and even clear out. Uh, right. So, uh, our, so, so, so I have one paper with Stephanie Senoff where uh, we do postulate that serapeptase should play a role. Now the other substance that also dissolves the spike protein now it has has not been shown to kind of have this neutralizing effect on the infection, but that's bromelain, which is the family of enzymes derived from the stems of pineapple. So uh, David, uh, to 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 do you one step better, if you are we done with the graphical abstract? Yeah, yeah. You want so, me to stop well, the share? Well, what or, I'm going to do is I'm going to try to share my screen. Okay. And let me let me stop mine first, then. Okay. And then bring up your paper, so people can see the paper we've been uh, discussing uh, that was published uh, in the International Journal of Medical Sciences. Uh, what are some of the other important points you think for our audience? Now, our audience is lay people, physicians, uh, other healthcare personnel, scientists. Uh, what are uh, there some of the other well, major points? Well, let me mention 
that it turns out in the hemagglutination study I mentioned where you add spike protein to red cells and you get hemagglutination, uh, I, I was part of that study. I, that was actually done by the team in Marseille that first uh, used hydroxychloroquine and studied it against COVID treatment. And they looked at ivermectin and they, you know, they found this. But interestingly, we looked at four different COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants. And the last one was the uh, an Omicron variant. Interestingly, the Omicron variant was 10 times more hemagglutinating than the prior variants. Now, wow. interest, so they approved all these new generation of Omicron boosters with zero human testing. Just saying, well, it's like the others. I, I you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, this is solid stuff. You know, you don't, you don't want to take something that is potentially 10 times more hemagglutinating mm. with no human testing. I think that the risk benefit equation for Omicron, which has minimal uh, minimal toxicities it, because of the fact it does not get into the alveoli, which is how the virus gets into the blood through the alveoli. So it doesn't have these severe morbidities. Uh, so you have less risk, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, less benefit because it's, it's a mild disease, but much more unknown risk. So, but, you know, but- one... David, I have to tell you, my clinical observation is that Omicron, as you pointed out, it's a very mild infection. Now, it's occurring in the context of most people either having prior COVID infection or prior vaccination, so they've already been preloaded. But I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody with a mild Omicron infection, and then a month later, they turn up with a deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Yeah, I suppose it's possible. There are different pathways if the virus lingers in the body long enough there are ways it can get into the blood but 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 if the spike protein of omicron is more thrombogenic and some of it gets in in a preloaded patient who already has spike protein it may just be enough to to tip the balance yeah yeah now i I've, i've had patients and i'll say this parenthetically no vaccine but they've had COVID a couple times and they'll present a month to 12 months later with a giant blood clot. We've seen in yeah. my practice three foot blood clots. People yeah. with COVID, no vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I will say what we face as researchers, I, I, I've tried maybe obsessively to stick to the science and try not to get involved in controversies. In this paper, you know, I'm, I'm saying things that you can deduce from the paper. The paper itself sticks to the biochemistry very carefully. Uh, What I will say is perhaps the point at which mainstream people are most convincible is that with 10 times more hemagglutination activity, we should be very wary of approving this new, new generations of vaccines. It's time it's time for everybody to look at the science and, you know, call, raise some questions. And and then, and we'll be having, I believe there will be data coming out as Pfizer was forced to release their, uh, their internal data in less than 75 years, which they were hoping for. We may see some more indications that this may be a, a turning point where we stop 
uh, further vaccinations based on the Omicron variants. Yeah, well, certainly. Now, David, the figure one's pretty interesting. Can you describe it for our audience? Yeah, well, uh, on the left is the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, and and you have, uh, so this is, it's the spike protein and the green stuff are the glycans, the various glycans Mm -hmm. that are attached to the spike protein. Now, on the right, you have the red cell and all these little things sticking out. The, The shorter ones are the GPA molecules, which, as I mentioned, they're loaded with sialic acid. They have no other known function other than this primal pathogen defense of sticking to and clumping to things like SARS-CoV-2 virus. There's a million strands of GPA for every red cell. Uh, so, and, and then the taller ones are a band two protein, which also has glycans and also one actually an NMR study uh, showed that spike protein attaches to a molecule that's almost identical to a component of band two. Hmm. They look like little cactuses sticking out yeah. them yeah. Lo- yeah. longer than others. Maybe cactus is a good, uh, good analogy. Now, uh, figure two is complex because it's showing um, you know, it, it's showing basically amino acids uh, it, of the protein. So the protein is a peptide. It's, you know, it's a string of amino acids and terminus carboxy terminus. But go ahead and walk us through this. Yeah, I mean, basically on the on the bottom, uh, you, you have the, a SARS, one of the three trimers of uh, sars COVID-2 spike protein, and you show it shows all the glycans that attach to them, and then it shows the different monomers that uh, that it that are in those different glycans. And on the top, you see a GPA molecule, and it has actually they both are loaded with sialic acid at the tips. Uh, so okay. there may there may be some hydrogen bonding between them, but they're also made, it just may be electrostatic force uh, between the positively charged spike protein and the very highly negative charges on the surface of the red cell, uh, which can cause this this clumping. Now, does the spike protein always trimerize? Uh, As far as I know, yeah, yeah. So I think it's important to realize it's not a single spike protein, but it goes into these these triplets. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of, and, and many proteins dimerize or or trimerize. So it's interesting. Now here in this figure, and this is was in the graphical abstract, this is showing hemagglutination. So uh, how is hemagglutination different than standard blood clotting? Uh, I mean, that's, it's, it's clumping. Clumping is different than clotting Good. in that in clotting, you get fibrin and it sort of, you get a whole mess Platelets come in and it hardens. Uh, clotting, I guess, is meant to stop the. If you get a wound, it's meant to form the you know this fibrous, massive uh, tissue to stop the bleeding. But clumping is reversible. Uh, this hap- as I mentioned, it happens all the time in normal humans, where you're sitting down too long and you'll start get clumping in your a leg vein 
but that as you move, it will unclump. The mm -hmm. thing, the thing with once you get spike protein, then you have a much greater the balance towards clumping versus releasing them is radically shifted. And yeah, so right. I want to point out that a term that you'll hear people say when we look at this under a a blood smear, we call this rouleau formation. Right, and rouleau formation is when they stack up like this. Now, uh, prior to COVID, the main reasons of of rouleau formation was too much protein in the blood, uh, like a multiple myeloma or Waldenstrin's macroglobulinemia. Those would be uh, the illnesses that would cause rouleau formation. But now rouleau formation is common in people who have had COVID or the vaccine. And in fact, D David, there's this technique of dark field microscopy. So is that what panel A is showing or is it is dark no, field? No, a, a, a is from an elect using electron microscopy. Uh, B, now I do have one of the images and I'm not sure if B is from that or from another study. But the, the dark field is interesting. And on America Out Loud platform, um, uh, Jordan Vaughn from a Alabama has given some demonstrations of, of uh, the dark field microscopy. And some have said, listen, it may be an indirect way to assess spike protein and red blood cell interactions, but you know, why, not, um, why not consider this? Now, yeah. uh, it, in figure four, you're showing this uh, relationship between the vascular diameter, uh, this, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the flowing RBC content. What, what are the relationships here? Well, what it basically means is, what, now let me see. Uh, yeah, this is COVID patients versus controls. Uh, and it also shows long COVID patients. What happens with covid and and you get sim you get similar kinds of effects with i believe there's a there's an, a study looking at vaccinations where you get similar effects but when this when there's spike protein and it clogs up tends to clog up the smallest of the capillaries so it shifts the flow from the smaller capillaries to the larger uh, to the arterials and venals, you know, of larger size. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, so this shows it very, you know, it's a very convincing study with high statistical significance. Uh, so, so the functional capillary density goes down because of this shifting or shunting blood to right. larger vessels. Right, right. And, and this is the, it's what we call this diffusion gradient problem, this uh, oxygen diffusion mismatch that we saw. But it's interesting clinically, David, you know, I treated patients with oxygen saturations in the 70s for weeks, for weeks, and I wrote this up. And uh, so the hypoxemia of SARS-CoV-2 infection was far better tolerated than a consolidative pneumonia or uh, or heart failure. And it's another condition I treat all the time. Yeah, yeah. And- uh, uh, you, you want to get to the last figure, which is really interesting, because we haven't said too much about the th the big three generics uh, that were effective against COVID. Uh, so, yeah, this this figure three. So this so it turns out 
that in the time course of a few days, if you give a, a COVID patient standard treatment, their oxygen saturation, if anything, it declines a little bit. Uh, there's many studies that show it, but the gray figure at, at the bottom is uh, a series of patients who were not given ivermectin, are just given standard care. Then the blue, red, and green represent three different clinical series where patients were given ivermectin-based combination treatment. Uh, and uh, in, in each case, uh, at day one, there was a sharp increase, normalization in oxygen saturation. And if you look at the error bars, the, the statistical significance is enormous. It's something like P to the point oh 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 one. Uh, it's really, it's sort of like, you know, when there's a baseline of nothing happening and something dramatic happen, happens, you don't, this sort of cuts through the noise of randomized clinical trials where after a whole bunch of all, almost totally positive randomized clinical trials for ivermectin, we have some very suspicious studies where they really won't tell you the data. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the TOGETHER trial is an outrage. Uh, you know, a bunch of scientists around the world asked six times for four basic outcome numbers, which are the only outcome numbers that matter. The NIH and FDA said their primary measure was not was inadequate so we asked for the numbers that mattered they wouldn't give us but instead they said go see look at the data in the icoded data repository well after trying for two months the the manager of icoda said the data was never there oh uh, no <laughs> yeah it was never there and this is listed as the data source in the paper uh and, yeah. uh, so this and then the other one that was prominently cited is that, you know, definitively ivermectin doesn't work. They violated blinding in a third of the patients. The, the company that made the that tried to make the placebo said we can't make a placebo. They're pretty uh, technically and ethically challenged company. So instead, they use glucose, which tastes nothing like ivermectin. They totally violated the blinding. Uh, they actually found there's certain characteristic, not serious, uh, temporary blurry vision, things like that, uh, with ivermectin use. Uh, and they used a pretty high dose. Uh, strangely, the controls in the ivermectin had almost the identical rates of these characteristic ivermectin uh Right. adverse effects so but, this is this is a ridiculous study but this was cited oh this is definitively so we have some very strange negative studies nevertheless the at this point the randomized clinical trial record is mixed but you don't need randomized clinical trial when you do something and you get immediate dramatic effects that are not in the baseline Right. The consistency of the, the data, clinical observations. I've used ivermectin now. It was in the McCullough protocol in 2020. I've used it consistently for, for three years now. Uh, I, I'm an author, a co-author on the Hazen paper. And you know I've yeah, had patients yeah. behave that way. And I can tell you, you move up five or six points on a no two sat. That's what takes people. Once people start trading in the right direction, they're 
not going to be heading for the hospital or mechanical yeah. ventilation. So this is a very meaningful figure. Um, a, a paper by Gugliakis and colleagues now kind of synthesizes uh, all of this and mathematically shows that this uh, this was not a matter of chance. On clinical trials, I'm an expert in clinical trials. I've published as many as, as anybody in the business. I've been on more steering committees, day safety monitoring boards. In order to have a definitive trial and treatment, we need about 20,000 patients in each group. Anything less than that is not definitive. We're simply looking for signals of benefit, acceptable safety, and no trial of 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 patients has enough power to basically declare that a therapy doesn't work. Yeah. You see, the type two error doesn't work that way. David, yeah. well, we're coming to the end of the hour. Um, did you have any final comments for us as we wrap up? Uh, I, I guess I would say, you know, it's well known. There, the, the most distinguished scientists, uh, publishers, uh, editors of major journals know this report that Big Pharma had a lot, a, a lot to It has a lot at stake in general with drugs. The drugs they were offering for COVID were hundred billion dollar drugs, and they did not want, uh, you know, things like successful outcomes with ivermectin uh, or hydroxychloroquine. And the, the, these all three are discussed. All three of them sharply limit red cell aggregation in different ways. They they did not want this to come out. And the thing is, when you're fighting a, 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 an enemy like this, I mean, my belief is stick to the good science. And I, I think that we will prevail uh, trying to keep, keep, you know, keep the science pure and clean and hopefully cutting through to many, many mainstream scientists who just haven't seen enough of this, who are the narrative just by lack of knowledge, not not by bad intent. So, you know, by intent is to reach out to those you know, major, majority of good scientists. Well, David, let me be the first to congratulate you on a wonderful paper. You know, a typical paper has 30 references. This has well over 300. This is a masterpiece of scholarship. Uh, it's extremely well organized and well written. I congratulate you. We've been talking to Dr. David Schein, former National Institutes of Health researcher, who's published a paper regarding the biochemistry of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. We've learned so much. David, thank you for having us uh, together, actually, on McCullough Report. Yeah, well, thank, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Thank you.